Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. So, in 1973, America faced a really serious energy crisis. There was an oil embargo. Um, OPEC placed an oil embargo on the U.S. because the United States had expressed and shown support for Israel in the Yom Kippur War. How many of you remember 1973 oil embargo gasoline crisis? Okay, we got a few people in here who remember that. It was a pretty rough time in our, con- in our country from what I'm told. I was negative 10 at the time. And um, I've read about some of your history. <laughs> That oil embargo led to a serious price increase, something like 60% price increase in gas. But that wasn't the only problem. It wasn't just that prices got higher. It's also that supply got much, much less. It was limited. And so this created a very, very serious problem. Um, Gas stations, you would see signs like this. Do you guys remember signs like this? You'd see them posted out there. No gas today. Um, gas stations were only given a certain amount each day and it would be gone by probably 9 a.m. and um, they would be out and they'd have to wait for the next day. Um, it created massive lines. This, this is a picture taken from 1973, I think in November, um, where cars were just basically begging to get in to just get a little bit of fuel for a period of time and it created some challenges for people. Um, there was a lot of people stealing gasoline. People started to put locks on the um, uh, on the pumps, and people started selling brilliantly, by the way, locking gas cans for your house. That was a great move by some marketer. And some people started shooting people. There were signs like this. If you, can you see that? It says, no gas stealing. We've got a gun. We're ready to shoot you if you come try to take our gas. It was serious. And ultimately ended up affecting a lot of people. There were a lot of people who had to share rides, walk a lot more, not able to go places. It was a serious problem of panic and fear, and lives were changed because of that in that period of time. You see, it was a problem because a car has to have fuel to run on. That's not the point of the sermon, but a car has to have fuel to run on. And in 1973, fuel was both expensive and really, really hard to find. And that event in American history reminds me of a really interesting and difficult paradox in the Christian life. Prayer, much like fuel, is essential for the Christian to live on. But at the same time, prayer is difficult. It's hard. It's not always easily accessible to us. It's a challenge for us to do it. Prayer can be difficult. We learned last week that prayer was also hard for Jesus' very first disciples. In Luke 11, at the beginning of the chapter we learned last week, the disciples come to Jesus and they say this very statement, Lord, will you teach us to pray? Now these guys were guys that were raised religious. They knew the mechanics of prayer. They knew how to pray. They probably were praying people. But they come to Jesus and they've watched him live his life, saturated in prayer. The guy doesn't turn left or right without being in some sort of connection with his father. Big decisions come. He prays. Grief hits his life. He prays. When he's trying to figure out what to do, he prays. This guy is always praying. 
and they watch the way he lives and they say hey Jesus you're really praying will you teach us how to pray and so we started last week a series that we're going to run through the month of September on prayer. Lord, teach us to pray for two reasons. One, as I mentioned last week, I want all of us to unleash a prayer-filled life. Every one of us individually to live a prayer-filled life that we would be people who pray inst um, naturally, instinctively, that praying would become something that is comfortable for us and something that we live our lives based upon. The second reason is this, as I mentioned before, our congregation right now, our leaders are really getting into prayer to understand exactly what God wants us to be. We want to be a congregation that is so pleasing to God. Nobody else, to God himself, to Jesus Christ. We want to bring him honor and glory. We want to live to the fullness of what life and faith looks like. We don't want to just be adequate or just get by doing the minimum. We want to be everything that God wants us to be, and so we know that that must start with prayer. And so last week I asked you to make a commitment for 90 days. Um, there's an image out online. If you need it, I can get it to you. But I've asked you to pray with the elders, with Matt and myself, for 90 days, the prayer that is found in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. We did a formation of it to make it very personal, and I'll, I want to pray with you now and make a commitment every week to pray with you as a church, and then we'll get into our lesson. Let's pray together. Colossians 1, 9 through 12. Father, God in heaven who is so near to us, yet so powerful and able to do whatever. God, we want to be a congregation of your people that is so everything you want us to be. And so to do that, God, I ask that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will that comes only from you, a knowledge and an understanding and a wisdom that comes from you and you alone. Father, we want to live lives that are worthy of you, we want to bring you honor and glory. Father, we want to be people that are pleasing to you. We want our good works to bear fruit. We don't want to just be busy doing random things in the name of religion, but God, we want to do the things that you care about that are essential for this time in this place, in this location, and with these people because we want the work that we do to bear fruit in the name of Jesus for you. Father, we want to be people who know you better, who are strong with patience and endurance. So I pray for your help with that. And God, I want to just thank you because you alone are the one who have transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light to be with your people as your body here in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so last week we learned prayer. It's hard, it's challenging, it's difficult. Learning to pray, though, is possible. And that's why Jesus' disciples asked. They said, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? And Jesus started out very, at the very beginning teaching them how to pray by giving them his word. And we learned the principle last week that learning to pray the word of God is one of the very first things that helps us become good at prayer. God's word reminds us of who we are in light of God. It reminds us of the priorities we should have in life. God's word is clear about the very things that God wants us to bring to him and how we can bring those petitions to him. So if you and I learn how to pray scripture, it's like training wheels for prayer. And so when the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, when he gave them these words, he wasn't saying, here's what I want you to repeat the rest of your life as some like, you know, wrote thoughtless prayer. He's saying, use these words as a teaching mechanism to learn how to pray. But prayer is way more than just getting the words right. Prayer is about getting your heart right. 
It's about your mind being right. And so Jesus follows up those words in Luke 11, 1 through 4, with what we read today that John read for us. He follows it up with a story, a parable, something common that they would have understood. He tells them a promise um, uh, that Jesus said there about what prayer will bring. And he finishes it with a line of reasoning that he wants you to think through. It's, he wants you to use your brain to realize some things that when we get this, this story, this promise, and this line of reasoning, it will unlock a kind of prayer life for us that will help us be people who are prayerful. Jesus teaches us the connection we can have in prayer and the confidence we can have in prayer. Let's start first with the connection. So Jesus tells this story. Did, were you picking up on it there in verse 5? He said, this is a really common thing in the day of Jesus. He says, which one of you, if you knew that your friend that was coming on a long journey was coming to your house at midnight and you didn't have any bread in the house, which one of you wouldn't go to your friend or your neighbor and knock on the door and say, hey man, I, I need some loaves of bread, probably about three, because I got some people coming in about an hour and I don't have any ready and this is a problem. This was really serious for Jesus' culture. To not have bread to put in front of guests was a serious shame socially. And so this guy, this guy that doesn't have bread, is going over to the neighbor's house. He's banging on the door, and the guy's like, hey, man, I'm in bed. My kids are in bed. The door's locked. Will you just leave us alone? And he knows he's desperate. I need this bread. This is a problem. I cannot let my friend come and not give him anything. That can't be true about me. And so he knocks, and he knocks, and he knocks. And I love how Jesus says, the man doesn't give up and give him his bread because he's friends with him. <laughs> he doesn't choose to give him the bread because he likes him or because he knows that they have a good relationship. In one translation, it says he gave him his bread because the man was shameless. He just wouldn't quit asking. He just kept going and going and going, and he would not stop knocking. It was the man's persistence that got him the bread. And this story Jesus tells us, it, you may not connect with it right away. When I, when I read the story, the story I thought about for us in modern times would be like when I, um, theoretically speaking, this is not real, ever happened, when I tell Lisa at like 11 o'clock we've got to make cookies for the next day of something I forgot to tell her about, and we don't have the ingredients, and imagine how thrilled she is with me, and so I know I got to go and get the ingredients, right? And I'd say I go to Kroger and their clothes, and I go to Giant Eagle and they don't have it. I go to Walmart and they got the wrong flavor. I end up at Meyer and it's not in the right section. I can't find it. And somehow I'm at Walgreens at one in the morning and they have it, right? But I'm not coming home until I've got that because I'm desperate. You see, this story is trying to teach us two things about prayer. The first one is this. The force of our prayer is in its persistence okay not the mechanics not the flowery language we use not the words that we get right the force of your prayer is found in persistence jesus is teaching us to be people who dig in who know what matters, who know what we need, who are certain about what we need from God. He's just told us that as he gave us the content just before. He said, pray for God's kingdom to come, for his will to be done. Pray for daily provisions. Pray for the ability to forgive. He says, you know what to pray for. Now it's time to get persistent. Dig in with all of your energy and all your might and do this. And what's interesting about this idea of persistence is I think we're born with it. Anybody who has kids that have raised kids in their home know that 
persistence is kind of something you're born with when you want something. Your kids ever do that to you? You know, like, hey, Dad, can I have? Hey, Dad, can I have? And with Nash, right now, he loves these, like, little fruit snack things that, are, you know, come in the package, and they're basically plastic that are colored and probably have some sugar in them. And this kid at, like, 8.15 in the morning be like, hey, Dad, can I have a fruit snack? I'm like, No. And he'll ask over and over and over. And it'll be like 1030. He's asked me 150 times, can I have a fruit snack? Because he's, we're sort of born with this. That we get in our minds something we want. And we know the person that can give it to us. And we don't stop until we get it. Now look at that, right? As Jesus has guided us into what our soul really needs. And reminded us who can do it. He's saying, remember to be persistent. Prayer is all about persistence. You want to learn how to pray? Pray. You want to learn how to pray well? Pray a lot. That's all I've got for you. If you want to learn how to pray, pray. If you want to learn how to pray well, pray a lot. A lot. Be persistent. Now the question might be, well, why does God want us to be persistent? Does God need to be convinced of something? Is that why he's like, uh, you know how Nash has to like wear me down and then I finally give in? I'm like, dude, just leave me alone. Take one. And then he asks for another, obviously. But does God just need to be worn down? Does he need to be convinced? Not at all. God's calling for you to be persistent, not to convince him, but to convince you. Persistence is about God saying, you need to be convinced that this matters. You need to be convinced that this is what will bring you joy. You need to put priority into this. You see, persistence in prayer demonstrates our faith in God's power that I'm not going to turn anywhere else to get this. God, I'm coming to you. You are the one who can do this. I'm trusting you. I believe in you. So I believe in your power. But it also is an expression of your trust in God's timing. I'm not going to grab the reins and make things happen without things opening up the way that you want them to. I think so much about the story of Abraham and Sarah when they were promised a child and they knew that and they trusted that. In Genesis 15, it says that um, Abraham believed God when he said you would have a child. He believed him. But time went on, 10 years, and they grew weak. And then they took matters into their own hand with the handmaid of Sarah. And there came Ishmael not the son of promise. See, the persistence that we have in prayer demonstrates to God that we won't do it ourselves. We trust you, and we will wait for you to move. God wants us to be persistent to show him we trust him. The second thing this story tells us is this, that the action of our prayers is actually familiar. So Jesus uses a story that would be very common for them in that day and age to understand what prayer is like. Prayer is not some really weird, um, hyper-spiritual, religious activity that you've never really had connection with. Jesus says when they say, teach us to pray, okay, here's some words. And then, you know how it's like when you have a friend who's coming and you go ask your friend for something? Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, you actually already know how to pray. You're just sometimes asking for the wrong things and mainly usually asking the wrong person. To pray is to be human, not to be religious. You are a person that knows how to express gratitude, express petition, express needs, express fears. You are a person that knows how to do that. You already express those things. It just matters where you express them. So for instance, 
A lot of things we do today already could quickly become prayer, not if we added prayer to our life, but if we changed what we were doing. Let me give you an example. You're driving in the car and your thoughts are racing about the day. You're afraid of what's going to happen. You're nervous. What's going to be about this day or this week or this month or this year? What's coming down the line? When you quickly turn thoughts of worry into prayers to God, all of a sudden it becomes prayer. Do you see that? You're already doing that activity. And complaining, all the complaining we do about things we don't like, things that we're frustrated by, finding just some ear to listen to what I don't like, right? What if we took those moments and actually converted that to a lament that God does care about what hurts you and what bothers you and petition. Hey God, can you help fix this? This is something I'm hurting over, I'm worried about, I don't like. Would you please fix it? How about when we stew in anger and rage and grow bitter? We have our thoughts in our own head, right? We just think about things and stew over them and work over them and over and over they start to eat us up. What if you converted stewing of anger, rage, and bitterness into a particular request to God for him to act in justice. You know that's what the Psalms are full of? David over and over would say to God, hey God, I don't like this guy. I've got an enemy. This person's been wrong to me and I'm asking you to do something to that, for that, for me. Do you see how you could convert stewing and anger into prayer? Maybe ask for some patience. What about gossip? Maybe we gossip sometimes. We find somebody who's listening to us or somebody who we want to share a conversation with and we talk about somebody else. How quickly could you convert gossip into intercession for somebody else? You know what intercession is? To stand before the throne to pray for somebody else. You see, when we convert our stream of thought just into a stream of prayer, our lives will dramatically change. Do you understand what I'm getting at there? That, that we do a lot of things with our minutes and hours in the day that could easily be prayer that are not yet prayer. That prayer is not this big thing that you've got to add to the to-do list, but you can actually shift what you're already doing from thought to prayer. Prayer is not something you have to add. It's a substitution for what you're already doing. And the power behind all of this rests in one factor. And that is the confidence you have in who you're talking to. And that's really the second part of this uh, story that Jesus tells. So he shows us the connection that prayer is really found in uh, persistence. And the action of prayer is familiar to us. But what about the confidence in prayer? What makes us want to turn to God and move out of just our stream of thoughts and turn into a stream of prayer? Well, let me start with this. In verse 9, he says this. And I tell you, ask, it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, it will be opened unto you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks will find. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. That's a promise. He's making a bold promise there. And he's trying to help us build a confidence in God so that we would turn those thoughts into prayer. You see, here's the reality. We practice prayer right now with whoever we trust the most. So if you find yourself in your life running from one person to another, from phone call to text to personal talking, over and over and over, always bringing problems and concerns and questions, and never really turning to God, maybe you're seeking answers or just affirmation, most likely you trust people and not God. 
think they have power to make your life okay and better. If you find that all you do in your life is self-talk, that you just can't get out of your own head, that that's the only person that you share your concerns, fears, worries, and uh, uh, issues with. Perhaps you trust yourself and think that you have all the power, or we oftentimes get stuck in self-talk because we think we're the only ones with the responsibility. God cares. Or if you find that you only pray when you don't like things. Let's say you don't pray when things are good and you only pray when things are bad. Most often we trust things and ask God to make the things better for us. Are you following with me? We practice prayer with whoever we trust the most. And Jesus tells us this promise and then tells us this line of reasoning when he says, okay, look at your fathers right now. Which of your fathers, if a son asked for a fish, how many of them would give him a serpent? That's grotesque, right? That's awful. You would never think of doing that. And so Jesus uses what's called bottom-up reasoning. He's saying, listen, if you at this level would not dare to even do that, how much more your father? You see, Jesus is here trying to teach us to have confidence in God, first of all, by his promises. He shows us in 9 and 10. He says, ask, seek, knock. Now, what is the only thing you can do with a promise? Test it. The only thing you can do when I make you a promise is to give it a shot. If I promise you that this restaurant that they just opened up in Pickerington is wonderful, the only way you're going to find out is what? You got to go. You got to try it. I've made a promise. You got to see if it holds true. The only way to deal with a promise is to test it, to see if it happens. If it doesn't happen, then you shouldn't trust that again. If I tell you a restaurant's good and you go and you hate it and I tell you another restaurant's good, you might pause, right? But if I tell you it's good and it is good, you might trust me. Do you see that? Jesus gives this promise as an invitation to test him, to try. And that's what he does here. You see the progression of those verbs? Ask, seek, knock. Those aren't just three random verbs about prayer. There's a progression in them. Asking. Just open up your mind. Bring your requests. Speak to God. Seeking is the opening of your eyes, but also moving towards something, looking. God, are you answering? I've asked you to help. I'm looking for the answer. I'm active and available. Knocking, to check to see which door opens. You see, prayer is not you and I becoming inactive. Prayer is you and I becoming active in awareness of God. You see that? Sometimes we don't pray because we think it's just like stopping our activity. No, no, prayer is turning our trust to God and to act in line with his will. So Jesus wants us to grow in our confidence with God based upon his promises. You got to test it. This is as far as the preaching can go with this. You and your life have to try it and see if it works. And that's why he tells us this uh, line of reasoning at the end there, because he also wants us to have confidence based upon proof. As I mentioned, he uses this bottom-up logic. If you, as a dad, as a father, you watch fathers in your life being evil, know how to do good, how much more would God, who is a perfect father, treat you as his child? He's saying, look at yourself. You care about your kids. You might not always get the answers right. You might not always be the best. You might make mistakes. But at the end of the day, even in those mistakes, you're doing the very best you can. You're trying. He's saying, you answer your kids' requests. You want what's best for them. And then he goes like this. God is not even like you. He's better. You have to try. Here's the point, church. 
Prayer is the place where you get close, intimate, and personal with God. Prayer is the place where you weave your life into His life where you let yourself be found. It's like playing hide-and-seek with a little child, and you start counting, and they go hide, and then as soon as you go, okay, I'm ready to come find you, they come running out, and they tell you where they are, right? Prayer is you telling God, I want to be found. I want you to see me. I want you to know me. And prayer is the place where God changes us, and that's exactly why prayer is so hard for us. Because what we want, what we think we want, what we think is best for us is to remain in complete control of our lives and have access to an influencer like God. What prayer does is prayer humbles you under his mighty hand, leads you into his greatness, and brings you into submission before him. And that's where he changes you. And when you realize that you already practice some kind of prayer, maybe you're asking for the wrong things right now, maybe you're misguided, or maybe you're talking to the wrong person. This idea of his promises and his proof should give us hope that we can learn to pray and learn to trust him. God has proven himself trustworthy to us. No one more than God has proven himself trustworthy. He proved it first and foremost in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He put on full display that he has unbeatable wisdom and incredible power. You see, the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus was for my sins so that I could be saved. And it is the most brilliant plan that anyone ever, has ever thought of. No one has ever thought of a plan that wise as God. That How can I punish sin and save a sinner? All in the same act, and he figured it out. But it also shows you his power. That he was able to do that. To live a perfect life. To die a cruel death. To endure all that. Go into the grave and then come back declared to be innocent so that those who find themselves united with him can approach the throne of God restored in their union. That's what you have offered to you as a believer in Jesus Christ. Don't waste that. And if you're not a Christian, come into Jesus Christ, know who he is, believe in him, become one with him so that you can have access to this too. Let's stand and sing this song together. If you have a need, you can come.